What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, ear lover, bon vivant, and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, back with an exciting block-rocking beat. What a week. How is everybody's insurrection? Good? Good. Glad to hear it. Mine was just fine. Um, I uh, obviously... As you know, I was planning on attending the, to stop the Stop the Steel rally. I went. I had a great time. I have a new gavel that I took uh, as a souvenir from an office. I'm not going to say where the office was, but it was an office occupied by, you know, an older woman. And, um, you know, let's just say she gave me, quote unquote, a gavel as a souvenir of my time there. And what a delight to spend some time there in our nation's capital with our lawmakers. But now I'm back and um, anxious to dive right back into Frankenstein because, you know, things are starting to get good at long last. Um, I was about to foment my own insurrection against this book if it didn't get a little more pep in its step, but it seems like it has. I'm delighted. I'm enjoying it. Last time that we convened, Frankenstein has has made his way home. Uh, he met Ernest there at the house. Ernest is like, we found the killer. Frankenstein goes, oh, the, you found the big buddy. Justine's like, I don't know what you're talking about. No, Justine Moritz, the servant girl who we gave an education to and treated her almost like a person. She has been arrested and is to be tried for the murder of dear, dear William. Frankenstein is dubious. He says, how can you be sure she seems so innocent when I knew her six years ago? We know how people change over time. They get into that rock and roll lifestyle. The next thing you know, they're, they're worshiping Satan and killing kids. I mean, that's just the way it goes. And so Ernest says, yeah, I didn't think it was possible either, but certain facts have come to light that I think will change 
your mind. And that's where we left off last time. And it's where I pick up. He related that the morning on which the murder of poor William had been discovered, Justine had been taken ill and confined to her bed for several days. During this interval, one of the servants, happening to examine the apparel she had worn on the night of the murder, had discovered in her pocket the picture of my mother, which had been judged to be the temptation of the murderer. So if you if you remember, William was uh, wearing like a little pendant, I think, um, that Elizabeth said he could borrow. And the pendant had a picture of the, of the mom on it. Well, that's pretty convincing evidence right there, isn't it? You know, the picture of the mom in possession of the woman who killed, uh, is alleged to have killed poor William. And we will only refer to him as poor William, just like Mary Shelley does. The servant instantly showed it to one of the others, who, without saying a word to any of the family, went to a magistrate, and upon their deposition, Justine was apprehended. On being charged with the fact, the poor girl confirmed the suspicion in a great measure by her extreme confusion of manner, right? So, uh... I guess what happened is they drug they drug her down to the interrogation room and they were like, "Did you kill poor William?" And she's like, "What? What?" And he and they're like, "See, you're uh, you're guilty because you're so confused." I mean, that doesn't quite piece together, but let's just keep going with the story. This was a strange tale, but it did not shake my faith, and I replied earnestly, "You are all mistaken. I know the murderer, Justine, poor, good Justine." is innocent. At that instant, my father entered. I saw unhappiness deeply impressed on his countenance, but he endeavored to welcome me cheerfully. And after we had exchanged our mournful greeting, would have introduced some other topic than that of our disaster, had not Ernest exclaimed, Good God, Papa, Victor says that he knows who was the murderer of poor William. We do also, unfortunately, replied my father, for indeed, I had rather have been forever ignorant than have discovered so much depravity and ingratitude in one I valued so highly. My dear father, this is Frankenstein, my dear father, you are mistaken. Justine is innocent. If she is, God forbid that she should suffer as guilty. She is to be tried today, and I hope, I sincerely hope, that she will be acquitted. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would be terrible if it was Justine who did it. It'd be terrible if, if yeah, you know, that, the wretched servant girl who's been resentfully plying potatoes onto our plates for years, envying our cushy lifestyle, eyeing our gold and silver, if she were to be the one who was discovered to have committed this crime. It would be terrible. And meanwhile, I don't know why Victor is so convinced that it was the big buddy that did it. I mean, just because he saw the big buddy, you know, scaling up mountains like some sort of bionic man, it doesn't, ne- it doesn't necessarily follow that the big buddy's the one that killed poor William. Now, of course, I want it to be the case. I want it to be true. But in a very real sense, of course, if the big buddy did it, then Victor himself, by extension, is also guilty. You know, the, the, the whole theme with the insurrection, we've seen this a lot on, uh, on the news coverage of the deal. 
is the idea that others created this monster and unleashed it onto the world. Others have compared it directly to Frankenstein's monster. They've said, you know, you made this thing, and then you're acting all surprised when it goes and kills poor William. Or in this case, uh, a Capitol police officer and others. And you're acting all surprised, like, well, I didn't know. I didn't know the monster I made was going to do monstrous things. Well, it turns out it did. Are we responsible for that which we create? Or, upon creation, do we then release it on, into the world in a kind of deistic manner, where we're sort of hands-off? We make the thing, but we are no longer responsible for it. Now, this becomes, very quickly, a kind of theological question, a telling one, in so much as, uh, well, not telling isn't the right word, but a pertinent one, in so much as, like, these are ideas that are very much in the air at the time that Mary Shelley is writing this book. We know that. We know that the whole um, Christianity itself is sort of cleaved between the traditionalists and the deists and whomever else is going on, whatever else is going on around that time. And so it becomes about, like, what is my responsibility as a human to the world that I make? Or am I just a pawn in somebody else's game, right? The way we, the way we talk about it now is we go, well, what if the whole world is just a simulation? What if we're all just living in a simulation? Which is, you know, a very legitimate line of inquiry right now, which, as I'm sure you all know. Physicists cannot rule it out. In fact, they're actually doing experiments right now to rule it in. And I don't know much about physics, but I do know that they're looking at the uh, uh, cosmic microwave background. Is that what it's called? Which is the echoes of the Big Bang. And they're looking for patterns that shouldn't be there to determine whether or not we are living in a simulation. Well, you'd think if the simulation was good enough to make a universe, or us believe that it's a universe, then they, you know, they'd figure out the CMB. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent, you know? I've had three cups of, oh, not English breakfast tea at all, Irish breakfast tea. I mean, that's it. That's a That's good. If you haven't snapped to attention at that revelation, I don't know what's going to get your attention. Irish breakfast tea. What's the difference, you might ask? Um, what's the difference between English and Irish breakfast tea? Uh, God, I feel like there's such a good joke to be made there about the difference between the English and the Irish. Something about uh, occupation, something about birth control, something about independence. I don't know. Something about uh, Irish breakfast tea has fought for 300. I don't know. I don't know what the joke is. You know, I set myself up for a joke and then I couldn't finish. This is why that this podcast will never be anything more than obscure. Now I'm going to stretch and sip my tea and take a little break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I got to get back to the book. So the speech called me, the father's speech. I was firmly convinced in my own mind that Justine, and indeed every human being, was guiltless of this murder. Interesting. Every human being. Because he has created this monster that is human, but simultaneously is not. I had no fear, therefore, that any circumstantial evidence could be brought forward strong enough to convict her. My tale was not one to announce publicly. Its astounding horror would be looked upon as madness by the vulgar. Did anyone indeed exist except I, the creator, who would believe unless his senses convinced him in the existence of the living monument of presumption? Footnote! We've got a footnote. So I'm going to go to the back. The existence of presumption. Uh, Let me just get there, guys. Come on. Come on. Okay. Presumption. Richard Brinsley Peake's presumption or the fate of Frankenstein. Oh, interesting. This relates back to what we were talking about earlier. Was the first stage melodrama based on Mary Shelley's story. She saw the peak production at the Royal Opera House in 1823. So a few years after it was published, they were already doing the stage adaptation of it. Um, uh, 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 and they, so he titled the whole thing Presumption. Interesting. Presumption or the fate of Frankenstein. So, you know, that's what we're talking about here. We are talking about presumption, the presumption of Prometheus, the presumption of the creator who brings into the existence the living monument of presumption and rash ignorance, which I had let loose upon the world. Do all gods feel that way? Are all gods like, oh man, what did I do? I made I made this stupid thing. I was just fooling around. I made this stupid I had an idea. I made this stupid thing. I let it loose and now look. It's storming the capital. What did I do? You know, was Prometheus like, "Here's fire, and what are you doing? You're burning down the whole town with it." 
What are you guys doing? Right? I made you people out of mud, and what are you doing? You're beating each other senseless with flagpoles. What's the matter with you? Do all gods eventually rue their creations? It's a good question. We were soon joined by Elizabeth. Time had altered her since I last beheld her. It had endowed her with loveliness surpassing the beauty of her childish years. There was the same candor, the same vivacity, but it was allied to an expression more full of sensibility and intellect. She welcomed me with the greatest affection. Your arrival, my dear cousin, said she, fills me with much hope. You perhaps will find some means to justify my poor, guiltless Justine. Alas, who is safe if she be convicted of crime? I rely on her innocence as certainly as I do upon my own. Our misfortune is doubly hard to us. We have not only lost that lovely darling boy, but this poor girl, whom I sincerely love, is to be torn away by even a worse fate. If she is condemned, I never shall know joy more. But she will not, I am sure she will not, and then I shall be happy again even after the sad death of my little William. She is innocent, my Elizabeth, said I, and that shall be proved. Fear nothing, but let your spirits be cheered by the assurance of her acquittal. How kind and generous you are. Everyone else believes in her guilt, and that made me wretched, for I knew that it was impossible. And to see everyone else prejudiced in so deadly a manner rendered me hopeless and despairing. She wept. Dearest niece, said my father, dry your tears. If she is, as you believe, innocent, rely on the justice of our laws and the activity with which I shall prevent the slightest shadow of partiality. You know, it's an interesting thing here, and we've just come to the end of chapter seven, but I'm going back a couple pages where, you know, they're talking about Justine. And, you know, okay, so just uh, poor William, of course, murdered their brother. They're the youngest in the family. And then Victor, Victor Frankenstein shows up back at the house and uh, he, you know, he says, I tried to calm Ernest. I inquired more minutely concerning my father and her. I named my cousin, meaning Elizabeth. And then they talk about Elizabeth and the murderer. But every time they talk about Justine, they refer to her with such sympathetic tones. Even when, you know, they're sort of convinced that she's the murderer, they're sort of like, oh, poor Justine, who killed poor William. You know, everybody's poor here. And it just, it, it kind of flies in the face of the way I feel like you or I consider those who have been accused of crimes. We sort of pride ourselves on our innocent until proven guilty credo here in uh, this country. And yet we also tend to treat whoever's arrested as guilty just in our minds. But, you know, they've got, they're, they're being very, I think, generous towards Justine. They're, you know, they're all basically going, gee, I hope she didn't do it, even though they found the necklace on her. You know, I hope it wasn't her. And if she is acquitted, like, I'll be happy again. 
Like, it's just, it, it, I, I feel like it's just a little bit different than we would be. Like, you know, if, if one of my servants, and as you know, I have a stable of servants, probably, I mean, I, it's hard for me to keep track of the actual number of staff here at the mansion, but it's probably 30, 35, okay? And I'm fond of many of them, and I know most of their names. So if one of them were to be accused of killing, you know, let's say Squash, my beloved little dog squash. And, you know, if they were just accused and taken downtown, I might feel like, oh, gee, I hope that staff, let's say in this case, uh, Barbara, who does my uh, silver, she pol- she's a silver polisher. If she's the one that's taken, I'm, and I like her, you know, if Barbara's like, oh, I didn't do it. And I'm like, I hope you didn't. But, you know, I'm not so sure you were found with squash's collar in your pocket. And then if Barbara were acquitted, right, and she wanted to come back to polishing silver, I, I would still feel like, you know what, Barbara, I think maybe you better find a job someplace else. Wouldn't you? Even if she was acquitted? I don't know. I don't know. Chapter 8. We passed a few sad hours until 11 o'clock, when the trial was to commence. Well, I guess they're keeping those Swiss banker hours, huh? 11 o'clock, geez. My father and the rest of the family being obliged to attend as witnesses, I accompanied them to the court. During the whole of this wretched mockery of justice, I suffered living torture. It was to be decided whether the result of my curiosity and lawless devices would cause the death of my fellow beings— one a smiling babe full of innocence and joy, the other far more dreadfully murdered, with every aggravation of infamy that could make the murder memorable in horror. Justine also was a girl of merit and possessed qualities which promised to render her life happy. Now all was to be obliterated in an ignominious grave, and I the cause." A thousand times rather would I have confessed myself guilty of the crime ascribed to Justine, but I was absent when it was committed, and such a declaration would have been considered as the ravings of a madman, and would not have exculpated her who suffered through me. The appearance of Justine was calm. She was dressed in mourning, and her countenance, always engaging, was rendered by the solemnity of her feelings, exquisitely beautiful. Yet she appeared confident in innocence and did not tremble, although gazed on and execrated by thousands, for all the kindness which her beauty might otherwise have excited was obliterated in the minds of the spectators by the imagination of the enormity she was supposed to have committed. She was tranquil, yet her tranquility was evidently constrained, and as her confusion had before been adduced as a proof of her guilt, she worked up her mind to an appearance of courage. When she entered the court, she threw her eyes round it, and quickly discovered where we were seated. A tear seemed to dim her eye when she saw us, but she quickly recovered herself, and a look of sorrowful affection seemed to attest her utter guiltlessness. I'm, as I'm sitting here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, I am uh, 
I'm sort of trying to do that look, that sorrowful, sorrowful, not sour like sourdough, sorrowful affection. So I'm sort of raising my eyebrows up and looking wistfully into the middle distance and feeling, trying to summon tears, trying to summon tears a little bit to see if I can, you know, try to cry a little bit. No, no such luck. The trial began. And after the advocate against her stated the charge, several witnesses were called. Several strange facts combined against her, which might have staggered anyone who had not such proof of her innocence as I had. Why do you keep saying that? You have no proof. You don't have anything. You know, you have Yeti running around, because that's essentially what, that's, what it is. You basically just have Yeti running around in the mountains, and you're going, Yeti did it the fuck are you talking about, man? You don't know anything. Like, okay, you feel guilty because you unleashed this thing, but you don't know that the thing did anything. Obviously, I want it to be true. We all want it to be true. We all want the monster to have murdered poor William. Although maybe not. Maybe it's better if it's Justine. Maybe then we then it becomes a, a kind of, a, you know, socioeconomic class resentment story. And we can Howard's in the shit out of it. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what I'm rooting for here. I'm glad William's dead. That's the only thing I think we all agree on. I'm glad that little fucking kid is dead. She had been out the whole of the night on which the murder had been committed, and towards morning had been perceived by a market woman not far from the spot where the body of the murdered child had been afterwards found. Okay, so she's out all night. And we don't know anything about Justine's habits in general. We don't know if she's like a club girl. We don't know if she's going out raving and, you know, partying. We don't know any of that, but but we know she's out this night. We know she's found near the murder scene the next morning, okay? All of this is making her look very bad. But perhaps it could be explained. Maybe the big buddy took her out, you know, like a King Kong thing. The, The big buddy took her out of her bedroom, knocked her out, right? Took her, was walking around, saw poor William, killed poor William, took the necklace, put it in her pocket. Like, there, you know, there's a lot of things that it could be, right? But, you know, this is an Occam's razor type thing. Well, who are you going to believe? What are you going to believe? I guess we'll find out. The woman asked her what she did there. But she looked very strangely and only returned a confused and unintelligible answer. She returned to the house about eight o'clock, and when one, when one inquired where she had passed the night, she replied that she'd been looking for the child and demanded earnestly if anything had been heard concerning him. When shown the body, she fell into violent hysterics and kept her bed for several days. The picture was then produced, which the servant had found in her pocket, and which Elizabeth, in a faltering voice, proved that it was the same which an hour before the child had been missed she had placed round his neck. A murmur of horror and indignation filled the court. Okay, well that story might make sense. Okay, so William's missing. She goes out to look for William. Okay? But when did she go out looking? Like, when did she find out William was missing? And did anybody see her before? You know, was she home when they came home? Where did she get the necklace? An hour before, Elizabeth had put it around William's neck. Had Justine removed it? 
for some reason in that hour, perhaps for safekeeping. She forgot it was in her pocket. She heard William was dead. She fell into hysterics, as anybody would. She took to her bed, and then they found it in her pocket, and she's like, oh, snap, because it made her look guilty. But maybe she wasn't. Justine was called on for her defense. As the trial proceeded, her countenance had altered. Surprise, horror, and misery were strongly expressed. Sometimes she struggled with her tears. But when she was desired to plead, she collected her powers and spoke in an audible, although variable voice. God knows, she said, how entirely I am innocent. But I do not pretend that my protestations should acquit me. I rest my innocence on a plain and simple explanation of the facts which have been adduced against me, and I hope the character I have always borne will incline my judges to a favorable interpretation, where any circumstance appears doubtful or suspicious. She then related that, by the permission of Elizabeth, she had passed the evening of the night on which the murder had been committed at the house of an aunt at Shen, a village situated at about a league from Geneva. Okay, so where's the aunt? Where's the aunt to testify? On her return, at about nine o'clock, she met a man who asked her if she had seen anything of the child who was lost. She was alarmed by this account and passed several hours in looking for him when the gates of Geneva were shut, and she was forced to remain several hours of the night in a barn belonging to a cottage, being unwilling to call up the inhabitants to whom she was well known. Most of the night she spent here watching. Towards morning, she believed that she slept for a few minutes. Some steps disturbed her, and she awoke. Big buddy steps. It was dawn, and she quitted her asylum that she might again endeavor to find my brother. If she had gone near the spot where his body lay, it was without her knowledge. That she had been bewildered when questioned by the market woman was not surprising, since she had passed a sleepless night, and the fate of poor William was yet uncertain. Concerning the picture, she could give no account. I know, continued the unhappy victim, How heavily and fatally this one circumstance weighs against me, but I have no power of explaining it. And when I have expressed my utter ignorance, I am only left to conjecture concerning the probabilities by which it might have been placed in my pocket. But here also I am checked. I believe that I have no enemy on earth, and none surely would have been so wicked as to destroy me wantonly. Did the murderer place it there? I know of no opportunity afforded him for doing Or if I had, why should he have stolen the jewel to part with it again so soon? I commit my cause to the justice of my judges, yet I see no room for hope. I beg permission to have a few witnesses examined concerning my character, and if their testimony shall not overweigh my supposed guilt, I must be condemned, although I would pledge my salvation on my innocence. Several witnesses were called, who had known her for many years, and they spoke well of her. But fear and hatred of the crime of which they supposed her guilty rendered them timorous and unwilling to come forward. Where's the aunt? Elizabeth saw even this last resource, her excellent dispositions and irreproachable conduct, about to fail the accused when, although violently agitated, 
She desired permission to address the court. I am, said she, the cousin of the unhappy child who was murdered, or rather his sister, for I was educated by and have lived with his parents ever since and even long before his birth. It may therefore be judged indecent in me to come forward on this occasion. But when I see a fellow creature about to perish through the cowardice of her pretended friends, I wish to be allowed to speak, that I may say what I know of her character. I am well acquainted with the accused. I have lived in the same house with her, at one time for five and at another for nearly two years. During all that period, she appeared to me the most amiable and benevolent of human creatures. She nursed Madame Frankenstein, my aunt, in her last illness. Sometimes I say aunt, sometimes I say aunt. I don't know why. I don't know why I do that. Aunt kind of sounds nicer, but I, I was raised saying aunt, aunt, aunt. I feel like Elizabeth would say aunt. I think that's why I did it. She nursed Madame Frankenstein, my aunt, in her last illness with the greatest affection and care and afterwards attended her own mother during a tedious illness in a manner that excited the admiration of all who knew her after which she again lived in my uncle's house, where she was beloved by all the family. She was warmly attached to the child who is now dead, and acted towards him like a most affectionate mother. For my own part, I do not hesitate to say that notwithstanding all the evidence produced against her, I believe and rely on her perfect innocence. She had no temptation for such an action. As to the bauble on which the chief proof rests— if she had earnestly desired it, I should have willingly given it to her. So much do I esteem and value her. So let's end there with court in session. Elizabeth standing up for the accused. And yes, the weight of justice hangs heavily upon the neck of Justine Moritz who is to be hung till dead. I mean, I don't know how they executed people then. Probably hanging, right? That's probably how they're going to do it. Now, here's another question for you. You know, we're speaking of creators, those who give life in this world. And obviously, mothers are creators, fathers are creators. But think about this. It was Madame Frankenstein, right? It was Victor's mother, who had taken such an interest in young Justine, who had brought her into the house, who had uh, given her an education, who had elevated her status in the house, who had put her in a position upon which to commit this crime, or not, but certainly in a position to be accused of this crime. Now look, fate is a tricky thing. We don't know how she's going to unspool her twisted, her twisted uh, ball, but you know, you think about all the circumstances that put somebody in a certain place at a certain time, and you can trace the circumstances in the case of Justine Moritz directly to Madame Beaufort, Mrs. Frankenstein. And is the creator in this case also guilty? You can go, I mean, look, you can do this way. You can do this exercise, I guess, with anybody at any time at anything. I mean, it is, again, the butterfly effect. Butterfly flaps its wings, poor William is dead. Like, that's just what happens. But it's interesting to contemplate. We are all creators. We are all destroyers. We are all victims. We are all villains. You know, that's just a fact. And in this case, with Victor Frankenstein, 
he's trying to untangle his own hand in this murder and would have been willing to plead guilty to it if his plea could possibly be accepted by the court. But, of course, it cannot. And so he remains in the gallery a silent witness to the travesty of justice that is about to unfold on poor Justine Moritz. And, uh, or not, we don't know. Will they show mercy towards her? We don't know. So we are left in suspense. We are like uh, Justine herself, waiting for the verdict to be read. And so I call this episode of Obscure Season 2 to a close with my new souvenir gavel which I received on my vacation in Washington. We are now in recess until the next legalistically dicey episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.